Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Open your Bible, beginning in Matthew chapter 5. And as you do so, I wonder, what does your heart hunger for? What does your spirit thirst for? What is that thing that if you had it, that dream that if you achieved it, that reward that if you gained it, you're sure you would now be satisfied? You're sure that now your restless heart would finally be at peace? God created us to have appetites, to have longings, to have desires for things that exist outside of ourselves. Some of these are physical, some emotional, some relational, some spiritual. We spend so much of our lives pursuing different forms of satisfaction. Yet if we just step back, if we honestly assess ourselves... We have to admit that even when we get what our hearts have longed for, even when we get those things, there's still a deep emptiness within. We find what so many have found, that a longing gained is simply a new longing birthed. And so we wonder, can I ever truly be content? Can I ever truly be filled? Can my thirst ever be fully quenched? Can my hunger ever be fully satisfied? In this series on the upside-down kingdom of heaven, we've come to one of the Beatitudes, another of the Beatitudes, and this one addresses the restlessness of the human heart. And there is such good news for those who have deep longings, and it's this. Jesus promises the joy of satisfaction. But... Not just any longing will do. 
God's promise is for those whose hearts crave a very specific thing, whose hearts crave the very best of all things. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, for they shall be satisfied. So here's a hunger so good that it should take preeminence above all others. Here's a hunger that's so right that it should subsume all others. Here is the one hunger that is so close to the heart of God that he promises to satisfy it. God's blessing is upon those who hunger, who thirst, who long, who yearn for righteousness. Which means we need to ask, what is righteousness? The root word of the use, uh, the root word is used about 600 times in the Bible, so we can rightly deduce from that that it's a pretty important word in the Bible. And like so many other words, it can be translated in several different ways. We sometimes see it rendered in English as righteous, sometimes as righteousness, sometimes as justice, sometimes as justified. The word is associated with salvation. So that in God's sight, we are either righteous or we are unrighteous. We're either saved or we are unsaved. It's associated with sanctification so that our behavior can be righteous or unrighteous. It can be either consistent with God's will or inconsistent with it. The word is associated with justice so that society itself can be righteous or unrighteous. It can either promote peace and equality or it can promote partiality and favoritism. And the sword is associated with the future. It's associated with the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, when righteousness will permanently conquer unrighteousness. So the question is then, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what kind of righteousness does he mean? I think it's best to, to see him as including all of these forms of righteousness, all of these dimensions of the word. And I say that because they're all so closely linked to one another. It's impossible to be saved but not sanctified. It's unnatural to long for holiness but to have no longing whatsoever for heaven. So as we continue, we'll see that God's blessing, God's divine blessing is upon those who who have a hunger for very holistic, very well-rounded kind of righteousness. You can see in your bulletin, there's an outline there. It's a hunger for salvation. It's a hunger for holiness. It's a hunger for justice. And it's a hunger for heaven. So the initial hunger that must be present for anyone to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is a hunger for salvation, a hunger to be righteous before God. Here's the thing. We are not born into this world as people who are righteous. We're not born into this world as people who long to be righteous before God. In the book of Romans, God tells us something that is just demonstrably true. You can just look around, look at the world, and see that this is true. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We are unrighteous people who have no appetite to be righteous before God. No appetite to live righteously before God. 
So if that's the case, how can any of us ever be righteous? How can any of us ever be righteous before God? Or to say it another way, how can we be hungry for what we have no hunger for? There's only one way. Our appetite must be changed. We must be given a hunger we do not otherwise have. We must be given a hunger for God, for God himself. A friend of mine, I was speaking with him the other day. He has a very serious medical condition. and It's been getting worse over time. This medical condition takes away his appetite. So he has no desire to eat. He doesn't want to eat. He often forgets to eat just because he feels no sense of hunger. And if he doesn't eat, he'll get weak. He'll get sick. He's in danger of dying from this condition. So he needs a medication. He needs to take a medication that restores his appetite. That medication is pumped into his body when he goes into the hospital and he becomes hungry. Kind of like that. God must give us an appetite to be righteous. Like a medication. It must come from outside ourselves. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come unless the Father draws him. And God draws us by giving us a hunger. He draws us by giving us a hunger to be righteous. He gives us a hunger and we act on it. So when that medication flows into my friend's body, what happens? He becomes hungry. He calls for a meal. He's brought a meal and he eats. And when God gives us a spiritual hunger, we cry out to him. He provides what we need. He satisfies us. He gives us what we've asked for. What does he do? Well, Romans 3 verse 23 tells us, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That word justified, it's the same word as righteous. So we could say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are righteous or made righteous by God's grace as a gift. So what happens is that God applies the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account so that God counts us as righteous. We're saved by a righteousness that was earned by Christ and then credited to us, given to us as a gift, a divine gift. To become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you must have a God-given hunger for salvation, a hunger that God himself gives you. And then you must do what you do when you're hungry. You must reach out and eat, accept what God offers to you. Listen to this invitation. It comes from God himself through the word. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So God invites you to follow your spiritual hunger all the way to the satisfaction, the fullness that he provides. You know what the doctors would not do to my friend? The doctors would not give him a medication that makes him hungry and then deny him food. They would never do that. And God will not give you a spiritual appetite just to deny you salvation. Which means if you have a spiritual appetite, if you, if you have a desire to know God and to be counted righteous by him, then you need to trust that God has given you this hunger. You need to respond to God by asking him to fill you, to satisfy that appetite. And he will do that. He will satisfy you. He will save you. 
he will count you as righteous. So the first righteous hunger is a hunger for salvation. The second is a hunger for holiness. Once we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we necessarily develop a longing to behave like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We refer to this as sanctification. It's the process of becoming holy. The the, the process we go through, through all of our lives, where we devote our lives, we devote all that we are to God. One of the things you might notice if you, uh, you go downtown to watch the Blue Jays play or the Maple Leafs or the Argonauts, as you look, you'll probably see that the crowd there is very ethnically diverse. There are many fans there who emigrated from countries where there was no baseball, there was no hockey, there was no CFL football, yet there they are watching it, cheering on the teams. What happened? When they came to Canada, they began to enjoy components of Canadian culture, including the professional sports. By settling in this country, they were immersed in its culture, and they began to adopt its culture. So if you become a citizen of Canada, inevitably over time you'll begin to act in certain Canadian ways. And in much the same way, when we come to the kingdom of heaven, we begin to act in heavenly ways. We find we have a hunger to stop acting in ways that are consistent with the kingdom of this world and a hunger to begin to act in ways that are consistent with the kingdom of heaven. Which is to say we stop acting in unrighteous ways And we begin to act in righteous ways. If you think about that, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It would be very strange if we were given Christ's righteous standing, but not given his righteous desires. With one comes the other. In Romans chapter 6, Paul calls Christians to live in distinctly Christian ways. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 13. He says this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I wonder if you noticed a a contrast that Paul draws there. He says, do not present your members to to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but do present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So he's saying you have the ability every day Every moment of every day, you have the ability to dedicate yourself to unrighteous or to righteous purposes. Every moment of every day, you can dedicate yourself to the pursuit of sin or the pursuit of holiness. And then between those two contrasts, he gives a command. He says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Which means he's saying that because you have been saved, you need to act saved because God has brought you from death to life you should act like somebody who is alive so in the moment God saved us one kind of hunger for righteousness was satisfied but another was just getting started and this is a hunger this is a an appetite that will extend all the way through our lives we always need to ask what Jesus did not say in the Beatitudes, and Jesus did not say, blessed are those who at one point hungered and thirsted for salvation. He didn't say, blessed are those who in a moment, for one moment, hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He said, blessed are those who are continually hungering 
and thirsting for righteousness. That was the point of what he was saying. This is an ongoing hunger, an ongoing thirst. And so what we call sanctification is this lifelong process of growing in our willingness, growing in our ability to behave like Christians. God gives us a hunger to put the old to death, to bring the new to life. He gives us a hunger and appetite to devote all we have to our God. Is there a more pronounced evidence of God's grace in your life than that things you used to hate you now love and things you used to love you now hate? Isn't it amazing what God does in us? He just completely turns us around. So things we hated, we come to love. Things we love, we come to hate. When he saves us, we begin to hunger and thirst for those very things that we had no desire for in the past. So the woman who found disgust in the idea of hard work and joy in the idea of welfare fraud, she begins to find her appetite for theft waning and and this new appetite growing to, to work hard. And so she begins to act out this hunger. She begins to act in righteous ways. She works hard. She provides for her own needs. She has so much. She, she earns enough to now help provide for the needs of others. The man who hated monogamy as a form of oppression, he begins to find that appetite for sin waning. He finds it replaced now by a hunger for purity. Knowing that he's been declared righteous by God, he begins to act. He begins to act out that righteousness. He begins to act in righteous ways. The person who hungered and thirsted for nothing more than fame and recognition, that's what he wanted. That's what he longed for. He now hungers and thirsts that God would be recognized, that God would be known and glorified. He begins to live out the values of the kingdom of heaven. So I need to ask, Christian, do you have a hunger for holiness? Do you have new longings? Do you have new cravings since you were declared righteous by God? Are there things you used to love that now you hate? Are there things you used to hate that you now love? Now, you're still a sinner. You're still at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So some old cravings will remain. But do you see them diminishing? Do you find yourself increasingly hungering and thirsting for those things that please God? Well, if you do, then be encouraged. That's an evidence that God is at work within you. It's an evidence of God's grace. God is sanctifying you. You're coming alive to righteousness. On the other hand, it's no sign of physical health when your appetite for food disappears and you've got no desire to eat. And it's no sign of spiritual health when your appetite for holiness disappears and you've just got no desire to be righteous. The Apostle John says, "Little Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Christ is righteous. If you are alive and healthy, You'll hunger for food and you'll eat. If you've been saved, you'll hunger for righteousness and you'll live it out. And God will increasingly meet your emptiness with his provision, your hunger with his holiness. You'll become what God has already declared you to be. So we have a positional righteousness. We're declared right in God's sight. And we have a personal righteousness. We become righteous in our lives. It makes sense then that we would also develop what we might call a social righteousness. A hunger to see righteousness extend beyond ourselves and out 
toward others. Before we see that, though, we'll look at that in a moment. I do want to point out that I believe we've come to the central point of the Beatitudes right here. So let me just back up, go over the Beatitudes with you briefly to show how each one of them builds on the other. There's a, there's a flow to them. Jesus didn't just randomly say these. There is an, an order, an organization to them. So first he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who come to God admitting their spiritual bankruptcy. They come with empty hands. Then blessed are those who mourn. People who know their spiritual bankruptcy. They're naturally broken hearted over their condition. Then he said, blessed are the meek. People who are bankrupt and broken, what do they do? They submit their lives to God. They submit their lives to God's purposes. And then we come to, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who approach God bankrupt and broken and meek, they're hungry. They're hungry to be declared righteous. They're hungry to become righteous. And then what? Those people begin to relate to others on the basis of their righteous standing before God and then the growing righteousness that God is working within them. So beginning at this very point, right here in the the middle of this beatitude, uh, we'll see that this one and all the rest that follow, they tend to point a little less toward the inner man and a little bit more toward the outer man, toward the people around us. They're a little bit less focused on the things we need from God And a little more focused on how we can live in this world for God's glory. How we can live as God's representatives. So how does that desire to live in righteous ways begin to work itself out? We'll see in the coming weeks through mercy, through purity, through peacemaking, even through enduring persecution. But before that, through two other forms of hunger, of righteous hungering and thirsting. So the third righteous hunger is for justice. It's a hunger to live in a society that displays divine righteousness. Why don't you turn to Psalm 82? I want to look at a few verses from Psalm 82 with you. Every Christian laments the state of this world. Isn't that your experience? Every Christian laments the state of this world. Every Christian has this deep craving for God's will to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Every Christian experiences some kind of persecution and longs for a world in which their faith is honored rather than disparaged. Every Christian sees people suffering oppression. Every Christian sees systems that have been created to promote disparity rather than equality. Every Christian sees courts of law that dole out injustice instead of doling out justice. This is not the way it's meant to be. We know that. God doesn't call us simply to lament unrighteousness in society. He doesn't call us simply to long for a better future, though certainly he does both of those things. But he calls us to aspire to it right now. My devotions this week led me to Psalm 82. Listen to how this psalm begins. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. I think we can best see the divine council there, simply being like God taking his place among the rulers of this world. He's sitting with all the kings, presidents, prime ministers, and he's speaking to them. And here's what he says. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God gives authority to people. God gives his authority to human rulers for a specific purpose. He gives it to them so they can use that authority to serve other people, to serve the people who are meant to follow them. And here's how God has called these rulers to exercise their authority, to judge justly, to ensure that justice is done, to rescue the weak from those who oppress them, to rescue the needy from those who are taking advantage of them. And this calling is not only for rulers, but for all of us. It's not just for our representatives, but also for we who are represented. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we often say we exist to delight in God, to the glory of God, for the good of all people. For the good of all people. Now, we often associate that with evangelism. That's absolutely true. We, we want to tell people the good news that God offers his own righteousness to them. But just as God cares for souls, he also cares for bodies. He cares for the mind, the health, the well-being of all those people who are made in his image. And so for that reason, we're told to pursue social righteousness or what we might call social justice. We're going to need to define that term. Um, The term has become very polarizing in recent years. So let me tell you what I don't mean by the term social justice. I don't mean social justice as an entire worldview that's premised upon critical theory. I don't mean the notion that all of history and all of society can only be understood as a battle between oppressed and oppressors. That's not what I'm referring to. That's not what any Christian ever referred to when they used that term until very, very recently. It would be my strong preference that I don't end up on YouTube this week and find a video about how that Charlie's guy is advocating critical race theory and he's become a cultural Marxist. That would make my week easier. I'm not saying that. What I'm referring to is social justice as the way we work out God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. Second great commandment, how are we going to work that out? So we're talking about a social righteousness that extends from the individual into society around. So it involves making fair judgments and perhaps electing those who do. It's promoting equality between different people, different groups. It involves protecting and preserving life. It involves righting wrongs within society, within the community, even within the church. This kind of social justice is absolutely no threat to the gospel. In fact, this this kind of social justice is really just a good and necessary way of working out the gospel, working out the implications of the gospel. Show me your faith apart from your works, says James, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's this kind of social justice that compelled the creation of deacons. The office of deacon exists For this reason, you read about it in the book of Acts that Greek widows were being overlooked in favor of Jewish widows when it came to the distribution of charity through the church. 
So the men who had authority, they used that authority to serve people who were being marginalized. They did that by creating the office of deacon. It's this kind of social justice that motivated a man whose name was Kakiwa Konabi. He was a, uh, an Ojibwa chief and he was a, a Methodist pastor. And he had a settlement on the shores of Lake Ontario, right at the, um, where the Credit River meets Lake Ontario there. He and his people there had created this beautiful farming community right where Mississauga Golf and Country Club is today. If you drive by in the QEW, you can look out and see where that community stood. It's a beautiful community regarded as one of the most Christian communities in all of Ontario at the time. And European settlers came and just shoved them off their land, told them to get lost. And so this man traveled all the way to England so he could plead the cause of the Mississauga tribe before Queen Victoria. What happened? A man who had position used that position to advocate on behalf of people who did not. It's this kind of social justice that motivated Josiah Henson. He was also a pastor, a Methodist pastor who had escaped slavery in the United States and he found freedom in Canada. And he began a community in southern Ontario, and that community provided land and training and opportunity to other escaped slaves. So a man who had the privilege of freedom used that privilege to help people who had been enslaved. It's this kind of social justice that compelled a group of Christian women in Toronto to found the Pregnancy Care Centre, which we love and support to this day. Women who had life used it to serve those whose lives were being threatened before they were even born. So each of these people had been saved. Each of them was becoming sanctified. And each of them had a growing longing for social righteousness, to to labor to see righteousness, justice, extend from themselves through the church and out into society. And if I could pause for just a minute and make an observation... Isn't it interesting that different people and different churches are burdened in different ways when it comes to this? There are literally a million good causes we can be involved in personally and as a church. There are a million injustices in the world that need to be righted. There's a a million ministries or organizations that we could serve, that we could fund. But I think we find that most of us develop a passion for just one or two of them, maybe three or four of them. That doesn't mean we think the others are unimportant or that they don't matter. It's just acknowledging that we are limited little beings. We're limited little churches. We have few abilities. We have few resources. And it's usually most effective to to aim what we've got toward a few causes, not every cause. And so it's usually better to give, let's say, $10,000 to one cause than to give $1 to 10,000 causes. It's just a good way of distributing what you've got. And I think it's important and it's good to acknowledge that God just burdens us differently. It's true of churches, that's true of families, it's true of individuals. Our calling then is just to be faithful in those areas in which God, through his providence, has given us passion. He's given us opportunity. He's given us relationships. He's given us this desire. But with that comes the obligation not to judge other people according to their passion for our cause. God burdens us differently, and that's okay. And so God declares us righteous, and God calls us to display righteousness in our lives, and God calls us to pursue righteousness 
beyond our lives, out into society. There's one more righteous hunger we need to speak about. It's a hunger for the end of the kingdom of this world and the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what Peter says. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting for a new heaven, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells so completely that it displaces all traces of unrighteousness, all traces of injustice. I wonder if you remember a few years ago now, Dan McDonald of Grace Toronto preached right here in our church. He preached on James chapter 1, and he used a phrase there that I've, I've reflected on very often since then. He, he spoke about gospel weariness, gospel weariness. And so he talked about how in the last weeks and months, he and his family and, and his church had just they had passed through this time of intense sorrow, intense suffering. They'd seen lots of deaths. They'd seen lots of sorrow, lots of hurts. And he said this, reflecting all that, he said, I hate this world right now. All it has done is break my heart. None of us want to stay here. We want to rise in the resurrection and be done with the pain. All this world does you is fool you and fail you. It overpromises and underdelivers. That man has a hunger for heaven. I think we understand that hunger, don't we? Deep within every Christian heart is that same hunger, a hunger to hear the blast of the trumpet, a a hunger to hear the cry of the archangel, to see the dead raised, to witness the appearing of Jesus Christ himself. And that will bring us to the day of judgment, the day of judgment when Christ will separate who? He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. The unrighteous, they'll be swept away to face God's judgment upon them for their unrighteousness. But the righteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven where a pure and complete and never-ending righteousness will dwell for endless ages. Do you hunger for that day? Do you have a deep, gnawing, growing hunger to see heaven come to earth? Do you have a growing appetite to dwell with Christ? Since the very beginning of the Christian church, Christians have prayed, Maranatha, Christ, come quickly. That is the hunger of every Christian heart. So there we've got four righteous hungers that are deep within the Christian soul. A hunger for righteousness expressed in salvation, in holiness, in justice, and in heaven. What's God's promise toward people who have that kind of hunger. He says, they shall be satisfied. The hungry shall be made full. The thirsty shall be satisfied. But of those four hungers, there's only one of them that's satisfied here and now. Only the hunger for salvation is completely satisfied here and now. In the moment you are saved, you are fully justified. You can never be more righteous in God's eyes than you are right now. You can never be less righteous in God's eyes than you are right now. And that's because when God looks at you, he doesn't see your attempts to behave in ways that are Christian. Instead, he looks out and he sees the perfect righteousness of his perfect son that's been credited to you. That will never change. 
But you can be more holy than you are right now. You know that. You can see more justice in the world than you do right now. You can have a deeper longing for heaven than you have right now. So we need to consider something interesting about these appetites. As God begins to meet these appetites, he also increases them. And so Christian, I'm sure you found this, that the fuller you get, the hungrier you get. The more you drink, the more you thirst. Our longing for righteousness doesn't diminish over our Christian lives. It just grows all the more. The more we grow in holiness, the more we crave more holiness. We're glad, we rejoice to see advances in justice, but that just increases our longing for perfect justice. We have a deep longing for heaven. But I'm sure you found this as well. The closer you get to heaven, the more you just yearn to be in heaven. And we'll continue to long and yearn and hunger and thirst until the day God finally fulfills the great promise he makes in the book of the Revelation. Here's what he says. In that day they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All those tears you've shed over the sorrows that made your saving, your salvation necessary, God will wipe them all away. All the hunger you have to be holy, even as God himself is holy, God will satisfy it. All the thirst you have to see justice extend from sea to sea, from pole to pole, God will quench it. All the craving you have to live in a world where there is only righteousness forever, God will grant this most precious desire. You will eat and you will drink and you will feast and your heart will finally, finally be at perfect peace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall, they shall be satisfied. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that we would hunger for what is most precious and most important to you. There are many things we hunger for, many longings, many desires we have, It's our prayer that none would be stronger, none would be greater than our longing for righteousness. Thank you that through your son you have declared us righteous. So now, Lord, let us long to to become holy, to become righteous, to labor to see righteousness extend from us and fill this land and, and spread across the world. Let us long and hope and pray for the day to come when all that is unrighteous will be forever swept away And we will dwell in righteousness forever and ever. Until that day, let us continue to hunger and thirst. Continue to fill us up, but continue also to make us long and and crave all the more. Let us long to see your kingdom come. Let us long to see your will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.